Welcome to Pumpkin Spice Podcast, where we've made it an entire year and still haven't solidified a tagline. I'm Rob Schulte, and with me, as always, is Graham Young. Graham, we've done it. We we brought the podcast back, and here we are in December. It's incredible. Yeah, it's great to see you again, Rob. Yeah, you too. You too. Today, though, for the holidays, we brought in a guest. It's a writer of... Such tales as Stinker Let's Loose, Slouchers, and Passable in Pink, among many more. He also hosts the podcast Doing It with Mike Sachs, one of my favorite podcasts out there. It's Mike Sachs. Hey, Mike. Hey, man. This is a, a, a long time coming. I'm glad yeah. you're able to join us on Pumpkin Spice. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, I'm glad I had a, an excuse to watch this movie because I really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I should just let the audience in on a little secret. I had some dental work done today. So if it ta- sounds like only half of my face is working right now, that's why. You're powering through it wonderfully. No one knows. No one can tell. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh if, if any listeners or guests uh, on this call right now would like to know what it's like to have them use a laser on your teeth, uh, I'm, I'm here to answer all questions. And if your dentist has ever asked you for uh, dating advice, I'm here to talk about that experience as well. <laughs> Where, who was this person? Was he, was he was she a sanctioned dentist? Uh, they also offered to cut my hair, so I don't know if that was part of it or not. Wow. Yeah. What, this, was this a dentist who only accepts cash? <laughs> and <laughs> bottles <laughs> bottles of mad dog. Just a quarter of a bitcoin yes. will do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful experience, but not as much as watching this film. Now, Mike, a little backstory. I think it was about three or four years ago, Graham introduced me to Christmas Evil. <laughs> And sorry, I know. Do not apologize. I thought I think this film is amazing. I watch it yeah. at least three times a year since. So then. goddamn it's great. Good. I loved it. <laughs> it's amazing. Grim, it's amazing. So wait, Mike, you had never heard of this before? No, I've heard of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not yeah. really into slasher movies per se, um, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I did hear of this only because I had read John Waters' book Crackpot. In which yeah. he talks about uh, this book and how much he loved it. But when that book first came out, or when I first read it, uh, this was not a movie one could find easily. I think I did even look for it, but it was very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not really hugely into exploitation movies, but I have to say that um, I was very uh, intrigued to, to watch it and very pleased as to what I saw. Graham, uh, how did this enter your? Uh- stratosphere films i i want to say that they played it maybe on tnt or tbs when i was a kid Uh and then like mike said like um uh john waters brought renewed interest uh to the film uh he does a little criterion interview where he talks about how wonderful the film is and how it's the perfect movie for you and your family to be appalled by uh (laughs) on, on christmas for me the reason the everlasting joy of Christmas evil is that it's a film that on paper probably shouldn't work. And somehow the great Lewis Jackson, the the director of the film pulls it off. And it's, it's, it's sweet when it needs to be sweet. It's gruesome when it needs to be gruesome. It just works somehow. I would disagree with, uh, can I 
say Ooh. that. Okay, okay. okay. Because okay. I thought that the concept was brilliant. That here is a guy who's obviously not Santa Claus. He wants to be Santa Claus. But the concept of a normal man losing his mind who watches the neighborhood kids to see if they're naughty or nice, and then to actually visit houses uh, unwanted, I thought was an amazing idea. And we can get into details later, but that scene where his fat ass couldn't go down the chimney, I thought was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. How realistic is that? So uh, the, the, I thought the concept was very, very clever, but I see what you mean. It's, it's like if someone had pitched us, no way would you have thought it would work. But it's, it's a yeah. miracle in the sense that someone thought up this idea, had the gumption to put the shit together, got the money mm. to do so, and then put it out. I think that's incredible. It was, it's wild. Let me, uh, I'm going to read what Letterboxd has as the description of this film because it is drastically different than if you were to get the back of the VHS box at Blockbuster in the 90s or 80s, I guess. It goes like this Better watch out, better not cry, or you may die. A toy factory worker mentally scarred as a child upon learning Santa Claus is not real suffers a nervous breakdown after being belittled at work and embarks on a Yuletide killing spree. I Pretty decent. But let me pull up the Christmas Evil VHS tape and prepare to uh, be shocked and awe, quite frankly. As a boy, he saw Mommy making love to Santa Claus. As an adult, he is a crazed killer who who has kept a list of all the girls who have been good and all the girls who have been bad. It's Christmas time, and all the bad girls are in trouble. A man dressed as Santa Claus is stalking the streets, brutally murdering innocent girls. Who's to say if the kindly old gent... Whose knee your daughter sits upon is a maniacal murderer. That's I think a little misleading. Were, yeah, I think they wanted this to be Halloween. Kind oh, of. Also, just uh, like, little girls, but some of the best characters yeah. are the little boys. Um, I'm thinking exactly. in particular of Mar- Moss Garcia in his penthouse magazine. Mike, you, you, I feel like you would have been a little Moss Garcia in your young age. Oh, I had a whole um, stack of that out in the backyard <laughs> next to the woodpile. Uh, I think we all have a story of finding a, a suitcase full of it in the woods at some point. One doesn't have to leave their room anymore to stumble across this sort of thing. Yeah, but you can't uh, cut it out and hang it in your locker anymore these days. You'd have to like, no, waste no. the ink on the you printer. Cannot. You know, no. that summary you just read, I wouldn't have been interested in it. I mean, yeah. if someone said to me, all right, listen, well, it was a little confusing for me, I have to say. Now, did, did he, uh, the main character who eventually lost his mind and wants to become Santa Claus, did he see the actual Santa Claus fooling around with his mother or was it his father dressed as Santa Claus? Because Santa Claus went up the chimney in the scene yes. previous to that. Was it mommy cheating on daddy with Santa Claus or Chris Kringle? I think the easy answer is it was just dad and some movie magic thing. But why show Santa like floating up that chimney? Right. If it wasn't the real guy. Graham, do you have a stance on this? All I can say is it really makes you think, man. <laughs> well, here's another, here's another possibility. Maybe 
the mother thought it was the real Santa Claus. Oh. And it turned out to be her husband. She didn't know either way because the guy was in. He wasn't stripping. She was stripping. Very Murphy plot point for me. She she definitely was like in awe when the kids are watching Santa put the gifts on. She is like in a trance at that point. A different sort of trance than the children. The children are excited. The mom is like, what? Oh, my God. If you see aroused. Her. Yes. But here's and the then, thing, too. So much hinged on this. So much hinged on uh, this guy's mother fooling around mm-hmm. either the real Santa Claus or their father dressed as Santa Claus and so much hinged on what the brother said afterwards, but it's also murky. And I think that was done not on purpose. I think it was just lack of whatever, but to me, it makes it even more mysterious. It just makes the movie more interesting because it opens up all these avenues. It doesn't zero in on one plot point. Totally. And when does the snap happen? Because he's obviously obsessed with, you know, it jumps 20 years in the future and he's still got Christmas decorations up. He sleeps in Christmas pajamas. He's watching these kids. He's got tomes of lists of naughty and nice kids in the neighborhood, which is like obviously uncomfortable, but not for the reasons that it normally would be for weird weirdos in the neighborhood, uh, which we can all name the weirdo from our neighborhood growing up and we can do that later but it feels like just someone slighting him at work making him work later one day is really where he's like no i'm done i'm now gluing a beard to my face and killing people the epiphany didn't seem to me that big a deal i mean he, mm-hmm. some guy asked him or just basically said you're working for me this weekend and then um, I have to go on a trip with my wife, and he actually does end up working for him, even though he's above him in the factory. And then afterwards, sees the guy who's supposedly on a trip, just drinking and making fun of him for having worked. But at the same time, it seems like he lost his mind years ago. I mean, who with binoculars yeah. would sit there and watch the neighborhood kids and know? what they do that is supposedly good and what they do is supposedly bad. So to me, the madness has occurred a long time ago. And it's just this one little thing that sort of trips it into the next zone. Like, I don't want to be me anymore I, at all. I'm not going to wear the mask of Harry. I'm just going to be Santa. But what right. were you going to say, Graham? Well, just real quickly, the irony that sort of what led to his breakdown was promotion. Yeah. Uh, and that is job, you know. Now, of course, this movie's made in 1980, so it's filmed a little, or came out in 80, so it's filmed in the late 70s. But I think of these movies like I mentioned this on another podcast as well, but like American Beauty, where like he's bored because he has a good job, and that is like such an era of like yeah. pre 9 11 like mm-hmm. standpoint that like. Oh, I'm going crazy in one way or another because I've got stability and like stability yeah. is not good enough for me. And it, it would be unfathomable. It's a boomer mentality where someone yes. as a character, a white character uh, doing very well living in the suburbs, they're aging and they don't like that and they're bored with their jobs. So they have nothing else to do but bitch. But yeah. in this case, it reminded me of a bit of Travis Bickle, where even before the movie started, this guy's losing his mind. This guy's already lost his mind. 
And like falling down is in that list, I would say. Well, too. I was going to say it did remind me of of falling down. Although I find that to be a much more angry, awful mm-hmm. movie. Um, yeah, and yeah. racist on top of that. Like th- this. Yeah, I would agree. Sweet. There's a sweetness to this movie. Like he's a sweet guy who just wants to do the right thing, and was just harmed as a child by seeing something he shouldn't have seen. There's so many films out there where it's like a kid sees something his parents do or or adults doing, and it's like, this throws me off kilter for the rest of my life. And I feel like, you know, sometimes you see mommy kissing Santa Claus, and it doesn't, in real life, and it doesn't turn you into a psychotic. But, Graham, you had also mentioned something to me a while back about how interesting it is that the like kids are the only people who end up defending Santa. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's because of the children that he's able to escape. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. They come to his rescue. And quite frankly, they should. The guy's fucking insane. He has dirt all over his face. It's <laughs> totally schmutzed up. He's holding, you know, God knows what in that bag of his, but the kids, the innocence that he lost as a kid, these kids still have. And it's that innocence that protects him. And kids can read bullshit, right? They know that he at least it means well, even if he's being a, a total crackpot about it. Yeah, you can be a serial killer as long as you mean well. <laughs> right. And the, the other adults are just as insane, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the one adult in the in the alleyway pulls a switchblade on him. It's like right. you you know, you're ready to kill this guy as well. You could just take the children and run. And at least this guy, Harry, wants to give gifts to orphanages and hospitals. Yeah. I will say that reminds me when he goes to the work party, like the holiday party, not the party as Santa, but the actual work party where he finds out that there's like this scheme to like make the workers throw in their own time and money to make more toys for the orphanage. And it's all like a publicity stunt. There was a monologue that I forgot about where he talks to his coworker, another manager, and he's like, I got your song. I know the dance. I know how you're doing yeah. this thing. And I was like, I don't know why I forgot about that, but that is such a like written line, but I yeah. love it. And I think it's direct. Like you would see that in a stage play. Oh, totally. It's such a 60s or 50s uh, playhouse yeah. type of live play uh, that you would see written on like CBS. I mean, the whole thing that he was talking about, I'm going to play my tune now. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I found the notes. I found, right. I found the notes. So the characters that he tells us to, they have no idea as to what the hell he's talking about. But you know what? (laughs) We as the audience have no fucking idea as to what he's talking about. So it's a a total mystery all around, but that's another reason why I liked it. I mean, here's a guy who's, who's saying this dialogue that only means something to him and the director writer doesn't even give a shit that the audience is not going to understand this thing. Because there's no reference to him being a musician. To this. Although I guess he did do a little song and dance in his first scene. That is true. He, he, he prances around like a, uh, like a nice little floating reindeer in that opening scene. I like yeah, there's that. no other way to describe that, but he, he literally prances about. Yeah, I, I gracefully. It is true, and I think he is like a musical theater guy. Also, yeah. Mike, did you know that? Oh, yeah. Fiona Apple's dad. Yes, I did. Yeah, I, isn't I that, that wild? Yeah, it's crazy. What a talented family. 
Yeah, and really, yeah. And they really are, man. And crazy. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Criminals, all of them. All right, uh, so I was doing cr- a little research on this. You want to hear a little bit of trivia about this movie? Yes. Okay. Please. Okay, so at one one scene, Harry looks glimpses through a window and sees dancing. Do you know who choreographed that dancing? No. No. Meryl Streep's brother. Shut up. No. So <laughs> I, I did some research on this. John Waters did a director's commentary on the Blu-ray edition. Oh. Now, I don't have Blu-ray. I didn't see that. But I, did, I was reading up on it. And that's one of the things that was mentioned uh, in, the, in the director's commentary. And that is really what I love about director's commentary. I love facts like that. Totally useless. It makes no I do sense. I don't understand why, why a director's commentary just isn't available on every streaming service now. Like, I know. I know. It's, That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Why isn't it offered? Graham, what's your favorite scene in the film? There are so many. Um, gosh, if I had to pick one, and we kind of talked about it earlier, but just the, the children sort of saving this deranged maniac towards the end of the film. Don't mean to spoil it. <laughs> um, it's he's psychotic and tugs at your heartstrings all at the same time, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. Yeah, I I love that scene. I also love the midnight mass scene where all of these guys and and part of like the weird thing about this movie, and it's probably because it was like aspects were poorly made, but like I love when a movie doesn't know how to like tell time because like they he meets these people at midnight mass, but then there's another party he goes to afterwards that like children are at. So who knows what time of day this thing's happening, but the midnight mass scene is so great because you get a, I think a couple of people of, that are his coworkers, but then you also get like just randoms coming from church and they're all like in this quasi mid Atlantic accent. It's like, Hey old chap, what are you doing here? Uh, oh, shouldn't you be delivering toys? And it, right. All of a sudden it became a Dickens, uh, Christmas yes. story type thing. Plus what I love yeah. about that scene too, is how static it was shot where there was what? 20, 30 yeah. people. They literally stood in the same squarish area. Uh, yeah. Even after the people were, were murdered, they didn't move. And then, no, and then they finally just walk up the stairs and back into church. <laughs> no big deal. No. Mike, did you have a scene that stood out to you above the rest? Well, there was a few things that stood out. One thing was I had it on closed captions, which I like to do because I like to yes. not miss a thing. And, um, you know, one of my, uh, I wouldn't say hobbies, but one of the things I like to do is how the closed caption describes music for those who can't hear the music. So typically it's either upbeat or slow or jazz or romantic or whatever, but they use a description I've never seen or heard before. When the music comes in, it's almost like an electronic type of music. They describe it as being brain sick music. Oh my God. Which I, I love. See that. Yeah. Brain that is sick. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? Graham, let's enter that into the lexicon of yeah, phrases we, we might need ha- to use on the podcast more often. I think we have to borrow that. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, John Waters well, did say something that I never would have known, not being 
a gay man, but he, he said it's almost about a sex change. Then it's about a man wanting to transition from one thing to the next. And I didn't even think of that. I, and I, after I read that, I thought he's so right. I mean, it's really about someone who is something, but wants mm -hmm. to become something else. He is not comfortable in his own body. I thought that was brilliant. And that actually brings me back to my thought of like, when does the quote snap happen? Because he's been acting like Santa for so long, but he's been doing it in private. And then something happens that makes him decide, no, I'm going to do this in public now. Like, I feel comfortable doing that. So I could see that too. And what's something to do with looking in the mirror? Oh, yes. yeah. Because yeah. we get to those two classic mirror scenes. Yeah, and it's just like he removes the white beard, uh, shaving the, cream? the shaving cream, yeah. and it's gone. And then when he goes to put the the fake beard on, of course he can't get it off, and he has just this meltdown, which is incredible. But that might be my favorite scene is yeah. when he can't, when he's losing it because he can't get his beard off his chin. That is incredible. It, that, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, now, if I could just say this as well, as a writer, please. I loved. Uh, he was the director was being interviewed at a live event, and you can find us on YouTube. And he did not get along with the lead actor, Fiona Apple's father, and her father, Brandon Maggart. Right. So he gave the, he gave the director a rough time, and there was a certain point where he wasn't reading the script properly, and he said, "Can I go off script?" And the director said, "Absolutely not. I spent ten fucking years on the script." reading it as is 10 years Holy he shit. spent on this script and just as a writer the fact that you could say fuck off i want you to do it exactly out as i wrote it it just i like that this is a guy yeah. who had confidence in himself his writing and his directing and you're going to do it like the way i want to do it and if you're going to think you're going to start improvising fuck off I, and this was like his magnum opus, right? He did like two things before this movie, and I don't think Lewis Jackson has done anything since. Nothing. I Maybe think television, but not film. Yeah. It ruined him. He was so upset by the reviews, he said, that Ugh. it absolutely ruined him. And it was only because of John Waters coming out publicly and saying this is a movie yeah. I love that it gave him an injection uh, back into this as a career and he now owns the rights to the movie which he did not have uh previous to that so he owns the rights to this movie now that is wow incredible um now mike i know you have a connection to texas chainsaw massacre and and graham is a texas boy right now he lives in texas uh now are you able to speak on the project you're, you're trying to work on with Texas Chainsaw? Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's going to happen. We, we being my friend and I, uh, we bought the rights to the movie, oh, sorry, the memoir written by um, Leatherface, the actor who played Leatherface. Gunnar Hansen, right? Gunnar Hansen, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, we uh, are close to having... You know, a producer is interested, and all we're waiting for now is for a date to be set. So hopefully um, we can make this happen. I mean, what interested me about that movie was uh, it was a very punk movie. came out in the 70s, very influential, made for a li very little amount of money, just totally off its rocker. 
and influential to a ton of movies that came after. But the making of the movie I find interesting. It was just this young, these young directors who didn't really know what they were doing in this tremendous Texan summer heat uh, with uh, yeah. real animal parts in, in scenes <laughs> and just doing what they did just for the love of it. And they had this vision and this is what they pulled off and they ended up doing it and really kind of changing the horror world uh, from that. That was sort of the start of regional cinema where there were places outside LA and New York to make movies in the United States. Texas Chainsaw came out in 74, 78, four years later, uh, was whole shooting match. And basically Robert Redford created the Sundance Film Festival because of that movie. So it really was a jumping off point, not only for great, you know, uh, intense cinema, but, you know, regional filmmaking in the United States. Makes so much sense. I I bring this up, Mike, not just because like I'm excited about that project when I saw you talking about it on social, but also like I could see a film like Christmas Evil being made yeah. into like the story of how did we make this? Thing. Yeah, like especially totally. with Lewis Jackson and. Well, Brandon I should Mag- say this: the person I'm working with is a great writer director named David Dubose, and he's the one who really brought it to my attention. But this is the type of thing that I love. I mean, I often find the making of as interesting, if not more interesting, than the movie itself. And I think the movie that we're talking about now, Christmas Evil, could be a perfect case of this. This is a movie made yeah. really not that much money. And here we are talking about it 40 years later. Um, and it is John Waters' favorite movie. And it's a lot of people's favorite movie. And they do live events and a lot of people show up. So the fact that you can do that you know, the older I get, the more difficult I know it is to achieve something like that. And the fact that this director, even though he never did really anything big after that, that he had the gumption to put this together and the drive to put this together. And the fact that it's thought of and being watched now, I watched on Amazon Prime, I think is a major accomplishment. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Graham, any final thoughts before we sign off today on this movie that you haven't been able to talk about? We talk about it so much that you probably don't know, but like people are tuning in for the first time for us talking about this. And we've done an episode on this before, so it's kind of like, okay, what what we've talked about and what have we not talked about? But um, watching it again, um, the film has a really cool look to it. foggy and a lot of natural light uses inside interiors it just gives a kind of a haunting spooky vibe uh, around the christmas time absolutely uh and final thought or question i'd like to ask you mike is do you think how much of this ending do you think was actually influenced by greece and how much of Mm. by like just christmas magic Uh, well the ending by the way is just unhinged i mean um (laughs) Anyone who hasn't seen it, he drives his van off of a bridge and it flies towards the moon. Well, I'll tell you what I think it is related to. And I do think that had to do with the drug era at that time. I I know that everyone was doing coke on the set. That's what uh, Lewis Jackson talks about. In fact, the producer died afterwards and his ashes are stored now in a cocaine vial. Jackson. Oh my God. So I think a lot of it had to do with the time, uh, the disco era, the cocaine era. But also, I say this not as an expert, but I think a lot of it had to do with sort of a gay mentality where you can become anything you want to become. And there is magic everywhere. And it doesn't matter who you are. 
uh, you can achieve what you want to achieve, even if it's a van taking off like these Santa Claus sled. And I actually find that ending very optimistic. Like, this was a guy yeah. who wasn't surrounded by the townsfolk raising their um, fire-branded um, little sticks at him. He escaped, and he went into his own magical world. I kind of love that. Yeah, I love that too. And we're going to have to all escape into our own magical world as we end today's episode. But Mike, is there anything else you'd like to let the audience know about? Any uh, last-minute uh, holiday gifts they might be able to purchase for their loved ones? Not really, but I do want to end with this. My favorite line in the movie, Myth Schmidt. Myth Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. We know that tune. We got the tune done. <laughs> uh, loved it. Anyway, I want to thank right. you guys because I wouldn't have watched it otherwise. But um Excellent. I, I loved it. So thank you for that. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Graham, another year in the books for Pumpkin Spice Podcast. I always thankful for you bringing this to my attention. Did are do you have any final thoughts? Anything? Or are we good to go? Uh, just stay tuned for next year. I'm sure I can find some more obscure, crazy stuff that <laughs> we've got to shock gotta, you. Yeah, it'll shock and awe. And uh, everyone else, stay subscribed. We've got a big announcement coming soon. And with that, we'll see you in 2024. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas!